Welcome to the Future of Coding. This is Steve Krauss. So one thing I've noticed in our community is that we all have our own peculiar interests, passions, visions for the future of coding, and, and also ways in which we think we can achieve that vision for the future of coding. Uh, and there are a lot of us who, ha who have different aspects of those visions and ways of accomplishing those visions in common. Uh, for example, I have a functional programming bent and there are a number of people who are also interested in functional programming in our, functional programming in our community. Um, I also um, am particularly interested in democratizing programming, programming to all sorts of people who don't who aren't you know considered programmers today. And I'm, and I'm also really concerned, relatedly, to um, improving the programming experience of, of of current programmers of today, and also people who aren't programmers today but hopefully will be programmers tomorrow. And um, well. There are a lot of people in our community who are interested in, in each of those things separately. It's, it's quite rare to find someone who's interested in, in all of those things, really, you know, all, all of the ways in which I, I think programming could be improved and, um, and where we eventually want to end up with, with programming. Uh, one person that comes to mind that shares that vision for, for what programming could be and how we can get there is Paul Chisano, who was an early guest in this podcast and is also behind the, the Unison project. Um, and today's guest is another such person who um, I share a lot in common with in terms of vision for programming and also how to get there. So um, if you are similar to me uh, in, in some of these respects, this conversation is going to be right up your alley. So um, Cyrus Omar is currently a postdoc at UChicago. He works with Robbie Chung and Robbie's team. And before that, he was at CMU. And Cyrus's work uh, is becoming increasingly widely known in our community. Um, he's working on what he calls the Hazel Project, and it's providing mathematical foundations for the activity of programming. That, that's kind of how, how I think of it. The first iteration of this broader project is providing mathematical formal foundations for um, the semantics of incomplete programs. So um, one of the, I guess, shortcomings of classical computer science style semantics is that they only give formal meanings to complete programs. And the problem with that is that most of the time when you're actually doing the activity of programming, the program you're editing is incomplete, you know, because you're constantly changing it. And so when you delete parts of that program, the whole program has no more formal meaning. And the tragedy here is that your IDE can no longer give you the good feedback you need in order to understand what's going on with your program until you complete the program in some way. You, you fix the syntax error or whatever it is that you're doing. And so what Cyrus's research, um, his initial research was focused on was um, how do we provide formal semantics for programs that aren't complete or aren't quite correct or don't quite make sense. And so he has this idea of typed holes, which um, I'll let you tell, I'll let him tell you more about uh, in the episode itself. So before I bring you uh, Cyrus, we have a quick message from our sponsor. Replit is an online REPL for over 30 languages. It started out as a code playground, but now it scales up to a full development environment where you can do everything from deploying web servers to training ML models, all driven by the REPL. They're a small startup in San Francisco, but they reach millions of programmers, students, and teachers. They're looking for hackers interested in the future of coding and making software tools more accessible and enjoyable. So email jobs at Replit if you're interested in learning more. And without any further ado, I bring you Cyrus Omar. Welcome, Cyrus. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to chat on the podcast. Um, 
so I like to start at the beginning with these conversations. And so your background, I think, was in biology before you found programming languages. Is that right? Yeah, I was really, uh, I was into neuroscience, um, you know, as an undergraduate, and I started my PhD also in, in a computational neuroscience program. Uh, and, uh, you know, I found myself kind of fighting the tools that we were using to do the kind of work we were doing more than I would like. And I, I've always had a hobby interest in programming languages and, 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 and tools. And, and so I started doing side projects and those became my main projects. And I decided to, I was actually in the, I was in the woods for a summer. I was at Los Alamos national lab doing a, like a research internship thing there. And uh, Los Alamos is in this forest kind of up in the North of New Mexico, up in the kind of the mountains. And, uh, I decided to just live in a tent that summer because it's still kind of got this desert climate. It doesn't rain a lot. And so it gave me a lot of time for, you know, self-reflection. And I, uh, yeah, I decided, you know, building tools to, you know, multiply science would be a better use of my time than to just keep kind of unhappily doing science myself. And so then I switched into programming languages at CMU, which, uh, you know, I, I was at CMU to do neuroscience. I didn't really have any sense of like that it was a good place to do programming languages research. And then I started looking around and I was like, oh, this is a, an opportunity to, uh, you know, be at a great place for this kind of thing. And so I, I did it and it's been good. Yeah. Wow. You're quite lucky to be at CMU by yeah. chance. Yeah, basically. Luck is, luck is a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of our lives are ruled by luck, I think. Yeah, I think I, I felt like a, I had a similar um, luck, I guess you could call it that, and that I didn't realize that Penn had a pretty good computer science programming languages uh -huh. department. But um, I later learned that it does because people often refer to um, work done by the Penn. Yeah, no, Penn, Penn has really awesome PL. So we both, yeah. we both lucked into being around fantastic PL people. Here we yeah, are. There, there you go. And I guess uh, potentially we wouldn't have done it if, if there weren't fantastic PL people around us subtly mm -hmm. influencing, influencing us. Yeah, so. probably not. So, so, um, so speaking about, uh, tools, um, mm -hmm. I saw one of your, it seemed like one of your earlier projects, um, mm -hmm. was like kind of an, it, it seemed to me maybe it was like inspirational for your current work. Um, mm -hmm. the, it was a project where you, um, took like a regular IDE and then embedded like a regex, playground and like also mm -hmm. like a color picker widget inside of it mm -hmm. what was that project about yeah so that was actually the first project i did when i switched into pl was uh yeah it's called um the the tool was called graphite it was this eclipse extension that basically allowed you to uh yeah use these graphical widgets to construct uh java expressions so those were two of the examples in the paper there's like a color chooser that uh uh, what the, the purpose of the widget was to generate code of the type at the cursor, right? So if you're trying to construct something of, of the Java class color, uh, what you could do is instead of writing new color and then the RGB values, you could use this uh, graphical widget to select the color um, and it would generate the Java code for you once you press enter. Uh, and so you know, that was one example. The regex thing was another example where it would generate the right um, regex Java value for you with all the escaping and everything done for you. Uh, and what the paper was really about was uh, uh, extensibility mechanism to allow 
you as a library provider to define new, uh, what we, we, we call these widgets palettes. So these type associated palettes uh, for the classes that you defined. And so um, the paper was, yeah, I was actually taking a class at the time. It was a course project and uh, it was on human aspects of software development with Thomas Latosa and Brad Myers, who are really great kind of empirical um, PL people. Uh, and so most of the paper is really us. We did a big kind of 500 person survey where we gave people mock-ups of these, these palettes and asked them for both quantitative and qualitative feedback. And then we asked for examples of classes that they thought this might be useful for and a few other questions like that. And, and we came up with this uh, very, you know, interesting set of design criteria, this sort of classification of examples. Uh, and then a little bit of the paper was like, we actually implemented it and did a little pilot study with it, but it was it was this kind of methodological paper of me learning how to do qualitative and empirical research um, that led to that project. Uh, and that project now is actually so now we're revisiting that project in Hazel, uh, which I can talk about. I, I'm assuming you're going to ask me questions about Hazel, but um, yeah, we're revisiting that project in the context of Hazel, which is a structure editor, so it's it's much easier to have graphical stuff integrated into um, into the editor, whereas in Eclipse and Java, it was kind of tricky to integrate the graphics into the, the text-based editor. Um, so I, I, yeah, let me revisit that once I've talked a little bit more about some of the other things that we have in Hazel. So otherwise, it's a little difficult to talk about what's new with palettes in Hazel. Yeah, um, wouldn't that be funny if I decided not to ask you about Hazel in this conversation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could just talk about my first project from 2012 for an hour that would be there's enough to, there's a lot to talk about there so i think i mean more generally i think integrating you know gooey stuff with uh programmatic sort of coding feeling kind of stuff is kind of a frontier of, uh in both GUIs and in programming right i think mm -hmm. uh in my mind you know when, when people think programming or they, when people think of themselves as programmers it's because they're writing code in sort of the textual style but really, I think of any user interface as a programming language, right? So like Chrome or, or Microsoft Word or whatever, all of these offer you this uh, set of primitives, which in, in Word, it's enter characters and open file and save file and, and copy and paste and insert mm -hmm. image and so on. And these are all, you know, they're all functions. They take arguments. Open takes the path as an argument. Uh, and so I really want to take that idea and, and, and run with it and really merge the, uh, you know, return to the world where using a computer is programming a computer. Mm. Yeah, I, um, I, I see that vision as well. Um, mm -hmm. And I find that it's very it's a very uncommon vision. Most mm -hmm. like most. Yeah, mo most people. Yeah, like you said, think about programming as um, like the superficiality of what programming is. Like it's a, right. a person, probably a, a, like an Asian or white man or an Indian man, like in a, uh -huh. in a, yeah. in a with a hoodie, you know, with like green text and a black background and they're mm -hmm. like doing their dark arts. That's like, and programming is, is related to like all of those things. If, if you just say like, well, actually it's not, it's not text and anyone can, you know, and it, it, more sorts of people can do it. All of a sudden it's, it stops being programming. Well, right. It's interesting anyways, how that word has, has evolved programming over the years and coding. And now we don't yeah. really know what to call. Like using a computer used to be programming a computer. And now it's 
now it's something that you know normal people use a computer and you know those kinds of people that you describe they program a computer and i don't think that's mm -hmm. right yeah so i i think that there is a a true distinction between programming and using word mm -hmm. um that that like you want to help blur that distinction or get rid of that distinction you want to like make using mm -hmm. a computer as powerful or as expressive as, as programming is and so i'd be curious yeah to figure out where that line lies because i i in, a, yeah. in an earlier conversation i had on this podcast i think it was paul chisano who said that basically it's just that the the programming languages of uh, gmail or microsoft word uh -huh. are just there's bad programming languages and so we just have to make our user interfaces better programming languages would you say that that's how you see it too just like adding stuff yeah, in a lot of ways, I think that, yeah, that's exactly right. Like, if you analyze the set of actions available to you in Word as a programming language, well, it's kind of an impoverished programming language. It's just some functions that you could call, but there's no abstraction mechanism. You can't very easily sort of automate repetitive tasks. Uh, and uh, there's a very limited set of data types, right? In Word, you have basically strings, which are the text that you write. Uh, you have images. You have maybe tables of strings and images and... Uh, you know, a few other lists and things like that. But there's no way to talk about my, the, the richer set of structures that exist in the world, that exist in mathematics, in Word. And um, I don't think that's necessarily uh, the way to design an authoring environment. I think the way to design an authoring environment is to have it based in a programming environment where you have the whole, the you know, richness of mathematics there. And then you layer on top of it the graphical elements that allow you to construct values of type string by just typing and construct values of type image by uh, loading them from uh, disk or something like that. But fundamentally, they're still those values and they can be manipulated programmatically. And then the key is really to be able to insert functions into, uh, into documents, right? So that it's not just these sort of base types in your programming environment. It's types that have an action on, on uh, other parts of your document. And so that's how I, I sort of envision Azel actually eventually becoming an authoring environment uh, with a programming environment, sort of a, a conventional programming environment as part of its bigger kind of structure. Mm, like the programming environment's the base and then you, and you mm -hmm. build an authoring environment on top of it. And, and, it, and it's always right. kind of, uh, it's like a fluid transition from one to the other. Yeah, exactly. The authoring aspects of it are just a mode of use of these palette mechanisms, which allow you to manipulate certain data structures programmatically or uh, sort of uh, uh, graphically. But, at, you know, underneath all of that, it is just values of various data types that you can also manipulate programmatically uh, when the need arises. Fascinating. So I think the first time I came in contact with a vision, this of um, like an authoring environment that was somehow more dynamic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. was it may have been Alan Kay's steps projects mm -hmm. um, or basically any small talky war operating system world was where I first came in. Where, where did this vision come from for you? Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think I've read a lot about uh, Alan Kay's stuff. So that's definitely part of it. Um, the other part of it is just using, like I read a lot about, I, I, I I was really interested in wikis for a long time um, from the perspective of organizing science. So when I started in neuroscience, I was really kind of overwhelmed with the literature in neuroscience, right? Like mm -hmm. just in any academic field nowadays, it's 
really quite difficult to get to grips with what's been done and to use what's mm -hmm. been done directly, right? You have this kind of just dead tree version of some piece of mathematics and you have to spend a long time implementing it uh, to, to get it to work in your project. And so I, uh, yeah, I became very interested in sort of reimagining academia in some sense as contributing to something like Wikipedia collectively instead of contributing to this just like massive dead tree uh, mm. debris, right? Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I thought, well, what would it take? Because, you know, what would it take to do that kind of thing? Well, there are lots of, you know, I, as, especially as a computational neuroscience, I would read lots of papers with algorithms in them and math in them, and I wanted to be able to run those. So it's, it was sort of obvious to me that this wiki would need to be a programmable sort of thing. Uh, and then when I switched to CS, you know, CMU is a very type theory heavy school. And so the first class that I took as a grad student in CS was uh, a type theory class. Bob Harper was teaching it. And then it all kind of clicked. It's like types are everywhere, right? All the different types of things in your word processor are actually types. And I think it all just kind of flew like putting those strain, you know, trades of thought together kind of led to this, mm. this idea. And it took, it, you know, it took me a long time to get to the point where I could start thinking about it again. And, you know, that paper, that palette's paper was in 2012. And then I spent a while doing other work. And now I'm sort of back to thinking about putting it all together again. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of, I think a lot of different parts of my background sort of came together to, to make those ideas happen. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I really like that you brought up wikis and also mm -hmm. collaborative science stuff because mm -hmm. I, I don't think you and I have talked about it yet, but that's actually, I'd say, if I had to say, like, list my interests or projects I want to work on, like the yeah. first one is the future of programming and the second one is, like, future of collaborative science. So uh, maybe that's why we enjoy talking to each other so much. We have, like, the same yeah. top two interests. Yeah, exactly. I would say, yeah, those are those are two of my top interests for sure. I think there's still very much a need for some some way to get, you know, like to get to grips with all of the knowledge that's been produced over the last several decades, right? I think having a place where, the, you know, we're all collectively trying to organize it is something that's badly needed and maybe we don't have the technology yet and that's what mm. I want to work on, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I feel similarly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I think I just want to point out one of the things you said there that I want want to see, and I agree with you, but I'm not sure if mm -hmm. I don't know. I just want to point it out. You mentioned um, like a place, uh, mm. and yeah. the assumption there is that like it's a single like place, and I I too yeah. get the feeling that something about that's important. So yeah, why do you think that's so important? Uh, I'm not sure that that's strictly necessary. Oh. Oh, okay. I. Uh, you know, you look at, like, I think of Wikipedia as the prototypical example of this massively collaborative effort to organize information. And it's such a tremendous success that, you know, to deviate too far from that model, you mm. better have a good reason. I see. Uh, but there's also a lot of excitement nowadays in, in not centralizing mm -hmm. resources like that. And certainly, you know, it takes a lot of money to run Wikipedia, right? And you have to donate to use it. And, and so it's not clear to me that it needs to be a single place. There's also different community uh, standards 
right? Like Wikipedia has a certain way that it runs its community. And I know some people are not entirely happy with that. Uh, and it seems like it's kind of premature to, you know, pick one set of rules mm -hmm. for everybody. And mm -hmm. so uh, I definitely want whatever we build to be for it to be possible for someone to run their own instance of this and, and, and compete or target it towards a different community or use it for some kind of a small subculture. Um, hmm. But uh, I can also imagine it being one place like Wikipedia where, you know, people are collaboratively writing the encyclopedia of, you know, computational, uh, the computational world, which is increasingly so the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah. um i i want to throw one more thing one more idea out there about this mm -hmm. and then we can go back to programming mm -hmm. um so in the same way that uh you want to blur the line between using a computer and programming a computer mm -hmm. and and like instead of programming a computer being something that you have to like wear a special hat or hoodie i guess in, in the case <laughs> of programming uh -huh. you can just you know wear whatever clothes you want you can you can do it yeah um i feel like with this tool for science could enable is a similar kind of blurring so you don't have to wear a lab coat anymore to do science mm -hmm. and contribute to like humanity's collective uh scientific knowledge like may maybe th this kind of a tool could um be a workaround and and get get a get away from the like ivory tower and of mm -hmm. like papers uh and like all the the artificial gatekeepers uh, and somehow democratize science do, do you feel do you feel the same way about this medium that makes me feel good to imagine that that could be true <laughs> it definitely i want that to be possible but i also i mean i am kind of deeply enmeshed in academia and i see how much money and time it takes to do good work and so i and especially i mean in biology you can't you can do theoretical biology just with a computer you can't really do experimental biology in your basement right now mm. You know, there are some efforts to kind of do some stuff and, you know, some experimental biology kind of kits and stuff exists. But it's really hard to imagine the kind of work that happens in neuroscience happening without institutional support. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in some other areas in computer science, generally outside, not, you know, not, not biology or something like that, people developing algorithms. Yeah, that's definitely what I want. I want it to be democratized and I think increasingly that's happening. I think a lot of really cool contributions in computing are, are happening from people doing it in their off time as programmers in industry. Um, but I still kind of struggle with that idea as kind of a, a way to do things like biology and chemistry and experimental physics and things like that. So yeah. alternative like funding models and, and research lab models and things that aren't so tied to the academy could work. And I think there are some examples of that happening. You have in neuroscience, you have this place, the Allen Institute uh, that Paul Allen funded, which is just kind of an independent research institute that does a lot of neuro, they call it neuroinformatics. So like developing uh, digital resources for neuroscientists uh, databases and and things like that and so that yeah that's the kind of thing i want to enable um but the conversations still need to happen about how to like break free from 
the current institutions because they have billions of dollars going into labs and and uh, experiments. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I feel like the funding maybe is kind of like an orthogonal concern. Um, well, yeah, it, yeah. It's obviously like deeply embedded. Um, but yeah. Anyways. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I hope uh, the more it's an orthogonal concern, the better. Yeah. Mm, yes. Yes. Well said. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, an, enough um, of us having fun. Let's <laughs> let's. Uh, well, we can still have fun, but let's um, talk about your, your main work. Yeah, yeah, ser- okay. yeah, serious. Let's talk about those uh, those Greek letters that you've got. Going <laughs> well, yeah. So um, my main project, which I've alluded to, is called Hazel, uh, and it's really kind of an experimental platform for this theoretical work that we're doing, uh, which is so far focused on this question of. Uh, understanding incomplete programs. So um, programming languages have typically kind of defined, programming languages and compilers, implementations of programming languages, right, have typically restricted themselves to understanding complete programs, meaning programs that can be parsed according to the grammar of the language, that can be type-checked successfully according to the type system of the language, uh, and that can be run without kind of failing. And those are things, those are sort of what we want to produce at the end of the day when we're programming. But during the actual process of programming, this sort of acts, this, this dialogue that you have with your programming environment, you're not producing complete program after complete program. You are in the, in, you know, in these in, incomplete states where there might be missing chunks of a program, where there might be errors that you're, you're puzzling about, um, where there might be multiple people working on different parts of the program, and so they're inconsistent temporarily, right? So um, we haven't really had a foundational theory for incomplete programs. There's been bits and pieces of theory, uh, but we really wanted to develop sort of the lambda calculus of incomplete programs, where the lambda calculus I think of as the you know Schrodinger's equations of computer science. Um, it, it, it tells you what abstraction is fundamentally without introducing anything else. And then you can layer on top of the Lambda calculus, any other language feature that you'd like in this very nice orthogonal way where you can then study that feature in isolation. And so that's what we want to do with, with the foundations of Hazel, which we call Hazelnut, this core calculus that is based on the Lambda calculus that allows us to work with these incomplete programs, uh, which are programs with holes. So. There are empty holes in in Hazelnut, which stand for uh, missing parts of the program. So missing expressions, missing types. We just added pattern matching actually to to Hazel, so missing patterns as well. And then uh, there are these non-empty holes, which stand for or serve as membranes around erroneous parts of the program. Uh, So type inconsistencies, binding errors where you have an unbound variable, for example, uh, other things like that. Um, and so the last two years have really just been figuring out how to reason about these incomplete programs in this, in this Lambda calculus setting, uh, meaning developing a type system for them and then figuring out how to run these programs. So I just came back from, uh, Popple in Portugal, where I presented a paper about how to run incomplete programs. Uh, and the idea is you want to get feedback about the behavior of parts of the program that you've written before the whole program has been written. And so conventional programming languages, especially statically typed programming languages, have not been able to do that. They just don't let you run the program until it's completely complete, completely complete. And uh, 
we yeah we developed a theory and implemented it in hazel that allows you to run the program before it's done it'll sort of evaluate everything around the holes in the program and track some environment information around around those holes to allow you to see the values of the variables that you've bound so far uh, while you're figuring out how to you know finish the program um, and so yeah so hazel's really this almost a philosophy of uh, you know language and tool design right now where we say let's figure this stuff out in a very simple setting and then start implementing it from there and now uh, the last few months have really been focused on scaling that up uh, and so hazel is um, you know, it's still a very simple programming language and programming environment, uh, but it's it's sprouting more and more features like those you'd find in full-scale functional languages right now. So we're, we're kind of targeting Elm um, because it has a, you know, it, it's, it's a pure language. It doesn't have exceptions, so you don't have to deal with programs crashing because exceptions weren't caught. Uh, and it's a language that's used by a lot of people in the web programming space. Hazel's a web-based tool. Um, and so that's kind of what we're initially targeting, but really we're using it as a, a place to explore even language editor co-design kind of questions. Like, are there features you don't need because you have editor support? Are there features that work better because you know that you have an editor of a certain kind? So, uh, those are the kinds of questions that we're thinking about right now. Yeah. Fascinating. There's uh, so much I want to reply to. And ask <laughs> yeah. That was more maybe about. too many things all at once, but no, no, it, it's great. I love it when, um, I interview someone and I know they have a spiel and then, <laughs> and, and then I can just, you know, yeah. Yeah. I've been, <laughs> I, uh, I've been writing a lot of research statements and those kind of things lately. So, uh, I've practiced. Yeah. Well, and I could even tell when you gave the presentation at live, I feel like you were the mm -hmm. one guy who got up there and was just like, like I've given this talk a bunch of times before. This is just, <laughs> like I know I know how to explain what I do. Uh, yeah, I mean I've I've presented. Yeah, the fall was a lot of presentations. I went to Strange Loop and I went to Live and I gave some talks at universities. And so uh, that's what you do as an academic, right? You like give talks so that people take your ideas and run with them. Because I don't have a massive engineering team. I just have ideas and freedom to explore those ideas. Mm. So um, let's. I'm gonna try and remember the things I want to touch touch on. The yeah. first thing that, that struck me was that the lambda calculus is the Schrodinger, Schrodinger's equations of programming. Yeah. And so of computer I've, science. I, oh, well, computer <laughs> science. Uh, I see. Yeah. Well, there's a difference. I there. The first thing that comes to mind is I saw. I think it was Alan Kay who said that it was the um, the 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 initial definition of Lisp in, mm. in Lisp. What mm -hmm. he, he said that was like the, um, I don't know if he said Schrodinger's equations. Maybe he had a different. Yeah, I think I've heard people uh, talk about, there was a blog post I saw that was like, here's a minimal Lisp interpreter and we should think of this as the Schrodinger's equations of programming or something like that. Well, and I guess it is Schrodinger's equations important or could you say, I think maybe the Lisp one was Maxwell's equations. Oh, uh, Maxwell's like, equations. Sure. So it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. Which, <laughs> which set of equations. You're just saying it's like the foundational set of equations yeah. for a field. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't think there's really a, ten a tension between saying it's like, you know, Lisp at its heart is the untyped lambda calculus. So, uh, <laughs> okay. you know. It's a matter of notation, almost. Yeah. Oh, okay. That. Uh, oh, okay. So they, they really are equivalent in that way. That's interesting. Well, I don't know and what people mean when they say that, but in my mind, you know, that's I, I think of the lambda cal the untyped lambda calculus there as being the foundations of 
these kind of classic Lisp systems. And mm. um, are there other foundations for programming that are like in contention with Lambda calculus? Like I, I know there's a yeah. Turing machine, but mm-hmm. I, but people don't use it for I I imagine for good reasons. Um, are there other calculi that are competitive, or it everyone pretty much agrees that the Lambda calculus is the way to go? <laughs> um i think everyone pretty much agrees that the turing machine is the way to go and i think they're probably wrong um yeah i don't know i uh i live in a world where everyone agrees that the lambda calculus is the way to go but the world's a big place oh i see i I don't want to characterize other people's opinions on this well i guess i'm talking about the world of academia because i guess that that, Mm -hmm. that was and even in academia there are multiple worlds where some people are Lambda yeah. calculus people and, and others aren't. For sure, yeah. I mean, the lambda calculus is very austere, and it doesn't capture imperative programming by itself. You can extend it to capture imperative programming, but it doesn't initially capture state. And of course, state's a big part of how programming is done today. And uh, and so there are foundation, you know, other um, abstract models of computation where state's much more central like the turing machine and people use them for different purposes uh yeah so anyway the lambda calculus works for me really well in terms of when i think of a new language feature uh if the first question is then what would that feature look like as an extension of the simply type lambda calculus you get you get a lot of mileage out of that way of thinking in, yeah, yeah, I, and uh, I have a, a friend actually who who speaks in a very similar way, and um, I forget. Um, he, he, there was a book he told me to read. I think it might have been written by Bob Harper, or maybe. Uh, pra- was it Practical Foundations for Programming Languages? I th- it has one of those titles that's impossible to remember because it's just okay. like, you know, the name of the field and the word like practical or something, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably issues. that book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a great book. That's the book we teach our PL class out of at, C- uh, at CMU, and um, it's uh, yeah, it really it starts like from the simply type lambda calculus and it builds up kind of this all of the features of modern programming languages as extensions to the Lambda calculus. And uh, it's really beautiful, right? Every page, you know, you have just two or three pages which get to the essence of concurrency and lazy computation and uh, imperative programming and, and all sorts of other things, right? There's like 40 or 50 chapters in this book and they're all a few pages long and they're so, you know, they're so insightful. So, sorry, is this the one, Tapple? Is that how people refer to it? Uh, Tapple's a different book that has uh, sort of a similar feel. Tapple's uh, a little older book by uh, uh, Benjamin Pierce at Penn. So you got maybe it. were exposed to that. Um, I see. And, uh, yeah, PFPL is kind of the abbreviation that people use for this Bob Harper book. Yep, yep. So uh, do you, I don't know if you know Stephen Deal um, mm-hmm. from, from places um, on the internet. Yeah, I know him from Twitter, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he, uh, we met up because we're both in London, and, and he's he's been pushing both of these books on me for and for similar reasons that you alluded to, mm-hmm. the, the the idea of if you're a programming languages person and you want to be able to test out feature language features in isolation, mm-hmm. yeah. this is like these this provides the tools for you to do that. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. It gives you this way to kind of just isolate that feature and talk about it very precisely right you can say what are the theoretical properties of this feature what invariants are you going to be able to state about 
the Lambda Calculus extended this feature, which is something you can't do without a foundation like the Lambda Calculus in mathematics, right? A foundation in mathematics. Um, so Bob, Bob likes to call like the alternative approach where you just kind of implement stuff in your favorite interpreter, uh, mm -hmm. seat of the pants programming language design, <laughs> right? Yep. It's just like, let's see what happens, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I'm not going to prove any theorems. That's, you know, that's Greek and I don't speak Greek, but, um, then you end up with these misfeatures, right? These features that you regret and they're kind of stuck in the edifice of computing now. Things mm -hmm. like null pointers, which, you know, the designer of that feature now regrets and it's called the, the billion dollar mistake, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it gives you this, this process that ends up with you feeling very confident about what it is that you're doing. It's not just flailing around in the dark as a designer. It's really mathematics informing design. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, I think it works really well. I think languages that are, you know, rooted in this process are now starting to reveal themselves as uh, languages of the future. <laughs> Uh, that's a contentious statement, but uh, oh, I, it I, is. I, but no one, no one else is here to argue with me. So <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that's true, especially because I agree with you. So yeah. I'm not going to argue with you. Mm -hmm. um, so um, to to get back to some of the things you mentioned, um, I I don't know if you mentioned this phrase uh, in in your your spiel just now, but I've I've heard you refer to it before uh, the gap mm -hmm. problem. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, the gap I, problem is just I, I mentioned I didn't say that phrase, but the gap problem is just this this gap between um, between times when your editor is in a complete state, right? So when when you're typing, you might write two plus, and in that millisecond before you write two after the plus, your editor actually can't even parse what you wrote, right? So it's quite hard for it to suggest something for you because it can't understand what you're doing. Um, and so the gap problem is, yeah, it refers to these gaps in service, gaps in editor services that arise because it doesn't have a, uh, an understanding of some of these editor states that arise. And so th that example was the gap is very sh short, but there are examples if you've been doing a long refactoring, right? If you change a type definition and then you have to go change, you know, 200 different places in the program, well, that whole time you're doing that, you certainly can't program doesn't type check you certainly can't run it sometimes it won't parse uh, and so with hazel we've solved the gap problem in the sense that every editor state you know every key that you press in hazel produces an editor state that uh, is both statically meaningful meaning that there's a type assigned to it that type might have holes in it uh, and, it and it's also now dynamically meaningful meaning you can run it and get a non-trivial result out of it uh, and so that's kind of the, the calling card of Hazel is no gaps, right? And that's what we're trying to maintain. Not not a few gaps, but like no gaps, right? And I think that doing it, doing a clean slate design is really what enables that for us. Yeah, this I like that, the, the no gaps idea. It, it kind of reminds me of if you put like a, a monkey at a Microsoft Word and they just hit on the keyboard, <laughs> it would yeah. just show something. It wouldn't be, yeah. it wouldn't make sense, but there would it wouldn't like 
just you know it wouldn't just show you errors it would show you whatever yep. the monkey pressed and so hazel has that property of you could put a monkey in front of it and it'll, it'll like still have no gaps it'll still like give, give yeah. the monkey good editor services yeah i like to use in my talks i have this uh image of a cat sleeping on a keyboard and having mm. typed out some nonsense so uh even in those situations exactly like you get feedback about what happened it might be that the feedback that you get is just that this makes no sense but at least to the editor it makes sense and that allows it to help you get it to make more sense to you and I think a point to just um, make clear is that even if like the monkey by accident put like six plus and then and then some garbage uh, mm. or six plus three and then plus and then some more garbage, it would evaluate the six plus three correctly in the context yep. of garbage. Uh, so, so I think that's like a really cool property. Yeah, exactly. If you have a little type error after this, if, if you write six plus three plus F and you're about to call F, but you haven't yet, that's a type error. You wouldn't be able to run that in pretty much any programming language today, but in Hazel, you'll get the nine plus F and the F will be in this non-empty hole, which is rendered as just a dotted red box in the way that you're probably familiar with from even Microsoft Word, right? It's like a spelling error, but it's a type error. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, mm -hmm. that's that's another great metaphor. It's, um, yeah, just un you just underline the errors and just leave them there because they don't yeah. stop anything. Yeah, it's like reifying the errors is what we're doing, right? They're not just part of the display they're part of the semantics of hazel mm, yeah that, that's a good way to put it so um i feel like what you're almost doing with this argument of the gap problem and these editor services that are so important and how you're mm -hmm. uh, able to solve the gap problem and provide editor services forever mm -hmm. um, as long as you have this editor semantics and, and a structured editor i feel like you're kind of building up to like the ultimate rigorous mm -hmm. defense of structured editors and I feel like the, this conversation has been lacking up until now. People give some yeah. benefits of structured editors. Other people say, oh, well, we tried those before. They didn't work. They're never fluid. But I feel like you, right. you, you're almost in a position to make like a, a crystal clear case of why maybe we aren't there yet, but in the future, this is going to be the way to program. Yeah. So what structure editing buys you, Hazel's the structure editor, uh, what it buys you is so I mentioned these holes, right? These holes are what allow you to represent these incomplete programs instead of having nothing there. It's like the concept of zero in mathematics, right? For a while, I guess people thought, why do we need zero? It just means nothing, right? That's actually very important to have zero. Mm. Well said. And in the same way, it's very important to have these holes that like positively represent nothing being somewhere. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, what structure editing allows you to do is it... It, prevent, it, it makes it so you, the programmer, don't have to insert the holes manually. So they're like in Haskell today and in several other programming systems, you can insert holes manually to make the type checker happy. Structure editing inserts holes automatically, both empty and non-empty holes automatically. And so that's what gives you this full end-to-end -end kind of solution of the gap problem is there's never even these states where you haven't inserted the holes in the right place. They're just always inserted where they need to be to make this to make the semantics happen. Um, and I think there are, yeah, so you mentioned, I mean, there are, structure editors have been around for a long time. You know, we didn't invent the concept of holes or anything like that. And Hazel, uh, what there are, yeah, there have been lots of questions about the usability of these things. Um, you know, you can easily get yourself into a situation where if you're trying to say every single editor state must have these very strong properties, then it makes it very difficult to uh, 
program fluidly because you do naturally sort of go through these intermediate states when you're programming in text that don't make any sense. You know, two plus F, uh, maybe you're about to apply F, but that moment doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I think um, it's, it's even stronger for me when I'm like trying to mess with parentheses. I like take something yeah. that was like an outer thing and trying to make it an inner thing or I'm like doing a, a refactoring where I'm really like inverting mm -hmm. the control structure. Then like mm -hmm. there's a lot of states that just don't make any sense. Right, exactly. So I think that's still an open question, right? I think there has been actually some really interesting work fairly recently in this project called Embedder, um, which is built using this tool called MPS that uh, JetBrains makes, which is a structure editor generator sort of. And uh, Embedder is the C-like language, not only for embedded systems, uh, that is a structure editor, but it gives you a, an experience of programming that feels a lot like text. It just feels like you're writing in a language with holes and it's just inserting the holes automatically, but otherwise the experience is quite text-like. Um, hmm. And it does that by representing in the AST these sort of weird states where the parentheses aren't balanced. It's just like, okay, that's a kind of node, unbalanced parentheses node. Whoa, um, that's interesting. Yeah. So uh, so we've been taking a lot of inspiration from that that design in Hazel. So Hazel's also kind of designed not, not to be this... You know, there are structure editors that are like these blocks languages that kids use to learn programming like Scratch. Um, those are also structure editors, but they aren't very fluid, right? You wouldn't want to use those as a professional developer. Um, we're really targeting more of the like, not entirely professional, but like adult uh, programming. And, and we're inspired by this kind of hybrid approach where it feels mostly like text, except there's holes inserted automatically. Um, and then we're exploring this idea of text edit holes, which basically say, if you do find yourself in a situation where the available structural actions are not satisfactory, right, that you can't figure out how to make the refactoring happen that you want to have happen, then you can say, take this subtree of your program temporarily render it just as text that you can edit as text. Uh, and then, but from the perspective of the rest of the program, it's just a hole that you're filling sort of with text. And so it doesn't make the whole program text, it just makes a subtree text. And that's particularly helpful if you want to um, work collaboratively with people where you don't want some edit somewhere else in the program to make your whole program meaningless. And so that's some, that's an ongoing kind of thing that's not in Hazel yet, but we're thinking about how to do that right. Mm -hmm. it, 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 um, it kind of, it's like you're technically, you've still solved the gap problem, but in that mm -hmm. sub node, it's, you don't actually get editor services. Right. Yeah. Or you just get the kind, you know, you get maybe syntax highlighting based on regexes like a lot of editors do, but you don't get the full, full suite of editor services. Yeah. Yeah, well, to me, that feels like a stopgap solution. Like one, one day, mm -hmm. hopefully, we'll have solved the mm -hmm. fluid structured editor problem, and then yeah. you won't, you'll get you'll get rid of that escape hatch. Yeah, it's definitely a stopgap, and I think yeah, that's that. Um, another project that we're working on is is uh, user defined edit actions. So you can imagine edit actions that are much higher level or that are very specific to a certain API that take advantage of like the algebraic properties of some structure in a library that you've defined. 
um, it'd be really cool if like if importing that library also imported some very domain specific editor actions. Um, so there's been some cool work in Idris on these kind of ideas and we're kind of trying to take them further and develop the theory uh, in Hazel for that as well. And so eventually, yeah, I hope that those kinds of uh, features allow you to avoid needing to drop into text very often and maybe at all eventually. Hmm. Cool. Um, in terms of editor services and the gap problem, one mm -hmm. thing, uh, one thing that comes to mind is um, hot reloading. Are you familiar with that term? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the, I guess. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Did I lose you for a minute there? No, I'm here. Oh, okay. So hot reloading. Um, I think. It, where I first heard the term was in the context of front-end web development. If you if you have a complicated app and you're developing it and there's a nested bit of state where you have to like click a bunch of buttons to get to a window where you're trying to actually develop and you, you hit save and you have to reload the whole page and re-navigate to where you want to go. It's annoying. So wouldn't it be yeah, neat yeah. if um, we could just hot patch the, the changes to your app that's yeah. running? You know, you, you get where I'm going with the question? of um mm -hmm. the problem with hot reloading is that it's unbelievably messy and so you end up in all these weird states and so what yeah. i feel like the space of hot re reloading needs is a, is a, a similar kind of semantic foundation so you can do this mm -hmm. in a way that's always safe is that something that yeah. this will help with yeah so we've worked on that uh, um in the same paper that did the live programming so we have a little section on what we call fill and resume um so what happens when you have a hole in your program and you run it is you end up with a result with holes in it, uh, corresponding to holes in the original program. And uh, if what you then do is go back and use that additional feedback that you got from running that incomplete program to fill in one of those holes, well, you want to be able to continue evaluation from where it left off, where it sort of had to stop because the holes were in places that where it needed to know what was going to be in the hole mm -hmm. to continue. And um, so we developed a semantics for uh, resuming evaluation where there's a theorem that says that the result that you get from resuming is the same as the result that you would have gotten from restarting. Mm. Yep, yep. And, and that, that, that's exactly uh, what I'm looking for. That gives you this confidence that, you know, you're not reloading into a state that you couldn't have ever gotten into from the, from the beginning. Yeah. Um, so if you think about like in, if you've ever used like Jupyter or IPython, this, these like lab notebook things where you have these cells with code in them, mm -hmm. uh, you can find like what you can do is you can, it's kind of like a REPL except you can go back and re-execute a cell. Yeah. And what happens is that the order that you as the user sort of interact with the GUI to re-execute cells will change the state of memory in your, in your notebook. It's awful. And, and it's, yeah, it's totally awful, right? Like you end up, sending the notebook to somebody else, they run it from the top on their machine and they get a completely different result. And it's not reproducible. If you're doing this in science, it's kind of a disaster. You want it, you want your you know, analyses to be reproducible. And so this guarantee of, uh, we call it commutativity. So what happens is yep. what's commuting is editing is commuting with evaluation. Mm. Hole filling in particular is commuting with evaluation. So yeah, having that guarantee, I think is a really important guarantee for reproducibility and sharing code with other people uh, performance and so on yeah um, yeah what it, what it doesn't do is it what it doesn't do is allow you to change the 
code in ways that don't amount to hole filling. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. So, I mean, that's trickier because you, if you've actually just changed the behavior of your program, then you almost can't get away from rerunning it or some, you know, because the behavior of the program is different. All the stuff that happened before that you want to avoid rerunning would have happened differently because the code is completely different. Uh, so it's trickier to get that kind of guarantee. You can certainly, there are, there are, um, you know, hot code reloading mechanisms that try to protect you from really egregious changes in the way your stacks and, and heap is laid out, but it's not, it doesn't have that kind of strong guarantee anymore. Well, I feel like the same, um, way that you justified and, and like contextualize what you've done, um, mm -hmm. with typed holes, you're like, well, we, we used to only care about programs and now we care about programming and like mm -hmm. incomplete programs. I feel like you could say the same thing about how, um, we don't care about, uh, complete programs. We care about like programs that change over time because that's what programming is mm -hmm. about. So even mm -hmm. if I have like program A and it's complete, there are no holes like P prime and P prime prime are like fascinating because you know, that's th what the dialogue is about. I'm constantly changing. Yeah. And so yeah, I feel yeah. like there should be some semantics. Um, there's some, should be some semantic foundation of, of evaluation of P and then I change it to pre prime. And like, I still have yeah. the evaluation of P there should be some way to yeah, save like the part, the, take the diffs and apply them to the results somehow. Yeah. There should be some way, <laughs> I, or I don't know. I'm, I'm, do you think the same, you, yeah. you get what I'm getting the parallel I'm trying to, mm -hmm. to go for. Absolutely. Go for it. You, so there's this area of PL uh, research called incremental computing. Mm -hmm. Um, and there the idea is if you have a function and it takes similar inputs to similar outputs in some way, then you should be able to take the diff of the input to the function and sort of apply a patch to the output that takes mm -hmm. less time than rerunning the function again. Um, so there's lots of interesting work in incremental computation that gives you ways to do that for different classes of data structures using different techniques, some static, some dynamic, uh, the complementary question, though, is, which you're asking is, what if it's not the input to the function that's changing? What if it's the function that's changing? Mm -hmm. Yes. And I don't know how much work has been done on that. Maybe some. I'm not 100% sure. Be worth looking into. Uh, yeah, but it's a harder yeah. question because it's like the entire trace of the computation is now going to have changed because the body of the function is now different. And so you can try to do some checkpointing kind of things where you say, well, until you get to the code that changed, everything was fine. And you know, until you get to it in the control flow, maybe you can like reuse kind of a prefix of the trace. Control uh, flow? What is that? <laughs> There's control flow. Control flow is a real thing. <laughs> when you take a branch <laughs> in a case analysis. That's um, just data flow. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. I think that's an interesting set of questions. It's worth investigating further. Mm -hmm. Cool. And do, do you think it could be investigated in the much the same way that you did your typed hole investigation? Mm -hmm. Like, like, uh, in the type Lambda calculus, like language oh, yeah. extension. That's, that's the only way to do it. Right? <laughs> okay. I mean, you could do it by the seat of your pants, but you know, we're, we're many decades into computing now. I think it's time for us to return to some principles. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. So there, I have a few more questions. Um, 
So one of the questions um, or something that someone said when I showed them the Hazel work, they like looked at it for mm -hmm. a second and they're like, isn't a, a hole in a function that I'm not totally complete with just a parameter? Just like, can I just wrap the whole thing in a function and call that a parameter? Mm -hmm. Is um, that? Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> what's the response? To that? <laughs> yeah. So a parameter is mediated by a variable. And when you fill a hole, it's not exactly the same thing as substituting for that variable because substitution is, maybe I'm getting too wonky here. Substitution is capture avoiding. So you, you, when you fill a hole, you want to have access to the variables in scope at that hole. Mm -hmm. But yep. a parameter to a function doesn't have access to the bindings inside that function, right? That would oh. be a kind of egregious violation of the binding discipline of most languages. So ah. they're not quite parameters. There's this notion in type theory, in particular this kind of type theory called contextual modal type theory, called a meta variable. And a meta variable is kind of like a variable in that it has a type, but it also has a context associated with it, which is the set of bindings in scope at that meta variable. Mm -hmm. And you don't substitute for meta variables, you instantiate them, which means uh, you, fill, you, you replace the meta variable with an expression that has free, free variables in it that get rebound in the scope of the variable, of uh, the meta variable. So, like, it, yeah. So your friend is sort of on the right track, like there is a relationship to something kind of more well understood, but that something is called a meta variable in contextual type theories. Uh, and our paper at Popple goes more into that. And so just, I'm going to try and repeat it and maybe I'll get it right or wrong. Yeah. A meta variable is like the context, uh, like mm -hmm. the, the, and when I say context, I mean the, all the variables that are in scope and their current state. So is that yeah. what a meta variable is? Basically, it's just, yeah. It's, it's just context? Yeah, so the like, way you refer to a meta variable is with a like what's called a meta variable closure, mm -hmm. which is for all the uh, variables that that meta variable, uh, that the thing that the meta variable stands for might use, there has to mm -hmm. be some value for that. Yep, yep. Or some a closure, yeah. For it. yeah. That makes so, sense, uh, like the this keyword in JavaScript kind of closure-y thing. Sure. Uh, this keyword in JavaScript. It's more, I think of it just like as a function closure in that it's the, you know, you take a function value and it's all the it's environment around it that might be relevant to that function. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, the, the only reason that JavaScript comes to mind is because sometimes when you write a function, you want to specify what environment you want it to evaluate in, like what context, mm -hmm. like what you want it to close over. I see, you, oh, okay. And so sometimes in JavaScript, you'll pass it like the you'll yeah. pass it an object that'll act as its environment. Oh, and I so see what you mean. Yeah, the, this is it's giving you the implicit like when a, when you refer to something not in scope immediately in that function, it goes through this. I guess it's been a while since I've written JavaScript. Well, yeah, it's yeah, you're right. I'm not exactly sure either what I'm what I'm getting. I all I know is that um, you can change the meaning of this by like specifically mm -hmm. saying. Like a, doing this dot apply thing, yeah. Yeah, what, what is it called in JavaScript? Well, I know that with the fat arrow, it does automatically. Mm -hmm. no. but it, I think yeah, there might be bind. some relationship there. Yeah, that, Anyways, like yeah, rebinding for... this, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the real kind of elegant relationship is with this contextual modal type theory, which is um, which is a, a type, like a proof theory for this logic called contextual modal logic, which 
there are all these different kinds of logic that philosophers came up with long before computing, right? And um, this particular logic talks about necessity, like it, it's sort of the analytic philosopher's way of talking about what's necessary for this um, thing that I'm talking about to be valid. And for a meta variable, it's like, it's necessary that whatever you fill me with better have this type using these variables. Hmm. Um, and so it gives you this really nice connection to the history of the world before computers. Like, that's <laughs> what I find really nice about these logical connections that when you discover them, you know that there's like some concept that's independent of the like details of the computer industry that you've discovered. Mm, yes, I, I want to get more into that later, like the generality uh -huh. of theory. Um, mm -hmm. I'm excited to do that. Um, but I just want to finish up with Hazel. Um, let's see. What, one of the things that you alluded to that I want to get back to is the palette work that you started your career with. Oh, uh, um, yes. Yeah. And so I, part of why I brought that up initially was because I think it's relevant to how you started out with building these GUI um, augmentations to a Java IDE. And then mm -hmm. my, my guess is that you what, part of what you ran into is that what was so hard about building those one thing that was hard about building those sorts of augmentations is um the gap problem is that, is that where you first mm -hmm. ran into it and then that's kind of what inspired this project or am i just projecting yeah. into your experience yeah sort of so like what it, in eclipse like what you know the way the palettes were sort of presented to you was based on the expected type at the cursor uh but of course what that requires is that there that has to exist, that Eclipse needs to be able to tell that to you. And if it can't even parse your program, it's hard for it to do that. Uh, so what Eclipse does is it actually doesn't solve the gap problem, but it uses these very complicated heuristics to try to sort of internally insert holes. You can think of it as, as internally inserting holes to be able to offer you that kind of expected type when you've just typed mm -hmm. like F open parens. That doesn't parse according to the grammar of Java, but Eclipse doesn't completely barf right it just it says i have this heuristic for that particular situation where there's an f and an open parens where i'm gonna tell you the type of the first argument of f mm -hmm. and eclipse and other sort of industrial grade ides are full of heuristics like this right these code bases are millions of lines of code of heuristics and they manage to sort of work most of the time <laughs> and that's how that that heuristic is what we rely we relied on eclipse just having this type information available from its own internal heuristics to be able to invoke the palettes uh in hazel we don't have there's no heuristics right there's just a nice elegant simple theory there's not millions of lines of code there's just thousands of lines of code <laughs> and um yeah so then the palettes what was limiting in in the Eclipse setting with palettes, there was a few few things that we're trying to improve with palettes in Hazel. So one is palettes in, in Eclipse are ephemeral. So once you're done interacting with the palette, once you've written your regex and your tests, or when you've written, when you've selected the color that you want, you press enter and it generates Java code. And then that's what's in your file is the generated code. And that's fine if you like made the right decision the first time, but it's not great if you want to change the color or you want to edit your regex and bring the tests back up. Um, and so in Hazel, because the, you're editing an AST directly, it's not, you don't require, it's not, it's not just a textual representation. 
the pallets are part of the program permanently. Uh, they're generating code underneath of them and there is an underneath, right? There is that dimension of like things that are in the program that you are not showing you right now. Instead, we're showing you the GUI on top and you can flip to the thing underneath if you want. Um, and so that's really much easier to do in a structure editor than it is in a, a text editor. It's and not so, impossible to imagine doing that in Eclipse, right? You could try to put overlays and things that change how things are rendered, but it's much more difficult to do when you're sort of trying to turn Eclipse into a structure editor at that point. So for that regex example, if you're in Hazel and you have mm -hmm. and you you write a regex, you write some test examples, and and you're yeah. and you're you're going along, and yeah. then you. Um, are are you store? Where are you storing those test examples? Is it is it like some metadata attached to the language somehow, or it's like there's a hot, yeah? It, how does that work? <laughs> so each palette is written. Uh, each palette is kind of a little mini Elm program in a certain sense. It has an abstract model, which is what's persisted in the AST, and then it has a view function and some other things to display the, the GUI and yeah, the AST just keeps track of that logic for viewing things in this palette context. And then it, in the AST itself at the place where the palette uh, is generating code, it's just keeping that model like a, you can think of it as like a serialized version of that model. Although there's not a lot of actual serialization necessary um, because it's just a Hazel value. Uh, yeah, so that's that's the design that we're working on right now. Is is in the AST. If you just looked at the AST kind of abstractly, it would be the name of the palette and the model, and then the UI of Hazel passes that model through the view function and renders the view. And then the activity of the view function is to update the model, and then also there's a function called expand that takes the model and generates Hazel code, which is what is what the meaning of the semantics of that palette is, is the code that it generates. Um, oh, okay. So if you have a palette in the tree, there, there doesn't exist the expanded code um, right. by itself. Right. Hmm. So yeah, you, what, can, like, you can, you can cache that. I mean, there's performance things you can do to cache that expansion mm -hmm. for a given model but like abstractly mm -hmm. uh it's just the model and then there's the palette has some logic for turning that into code and turning that into a view as needed that's very cool mm -hmm. so it, i guess you could yeah, you could implement it in a, in a bunch of different ways but what i like about the way you implemented it is that it makes it very clear that this gooey thing mm -hmm. like it is the canonical representation and then the expanded view is just like something yeah. it produces yeah exactly so this is closely related to some recent work I did on um, literal macros in, in uh, Reason and OCaml. Um, so you can think of these palettes as kind of graphical literals, right? Um, you know, like a list literal is kind of a one-dimensional GUI for lists, right? And imagine you want a matrix literal that's like two-dimensional then you can do that with palettes. And in fact, a lot of the same theoretical considerations that come up with how to generate these expansions hygienically, because it's a macro system really, uh, and how to reason about 
the rest of the program in the presence of these palettes, right? Because what, you know, if you're not seeing the expansion, how do you reason about what the program's doing? Well, there are some ways to do that in the context of type macro systems that apply also to this palettes mechanism. Um, and so, yeah, I think of them as kind of graphical literals. Um, and then, yeah, that brings up another thing that we're trying to add, which is you might want expressions inside the GUI. Yeah, you, you took the question right out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that wasn't something that in the uh, Eclipse palette mechanism that you could do. So uh, you could go from code to graphics, but you couldn't then inside somewhere in the GUI go back to code. And that doesn't work great if you're, for example, as a, ma a matrix palette, you want the elements of your matrix to be expressions in your programming language, not just literal numbers, right? So um, in Hazel, we're having it be totally compositional. So you can have these holes inside the GUI, which can be filled with Hazel expressions. And one form of Hazel expression is a palette expression. And so you can nest palettes by going sort of into a palette, then back to Hazel, and then into another palette. So it's like in and out. When you say in and out, you mean your cursor can go in and out, or you mean that you you can't, like, can I can it look like a nested structure where I can see mm -hmm. an outer structure and then it's like an inner structure? It's like nested yeah. boxes all on the same screen, and my cursor can just yeah, nested, move fluidly. nested boxes basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like you can imagine there's a palette for uh, generating numbers by manipulating a slider, right? Really simple example. Mm -hmm. Then you sure. could have a matrix of sliders. Mm -hmm. Right, you'd want to be able to do that. And, then, and, that and what if I want require, a matrix of yeah. sliders and each slider is multiplied by ten? You know, like can I can I do like yeah, yeah, you mathematical can, you expressions? Can, mm -hmm. You can put that slider anywhere a number is expected. Mm -hmm. So inside an arithmetic expression, it can be like slider Perfect. times ten. Perfect. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Oh um, wow. This so is great. There's yeah, some yeah. questions about how to lay out stuff like mm -hmm. that once it gets really deep and uh yeah layout is a tough question actually but conceptually yeah work. yeah well so I, well then then like all of a sudden you it like begs the question of what is the difference between a expression and like a gui if, mm -hmm. um and i feel like that a if if layout happens automatically then it's like mm -hmm you've just augmented programming with some literals and that's neat. Um, mm -hmm. But I feel like if you give people a full expressive control over the layout, then all of a sudden you've, you've done it. You've blurred the line between GUIs and programming because yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the, well, you can imagine a layout manager palette whose only purpose is to take a bunch of sub expressions and lay them out according to some rules specific to that palette, the way many GUI frameworks like for iOS, you have these different layouts. Um, so I think you can already kind of imagine doing that mm. without any special mechanism in that, Hazel. It's interesting because it, to me, it feels like, um, almost like macros because mm -hmm. if you have an expression in code, mm -hmm. you, you don't think of the expression itself as, as data. You just think of it as, well, usually you don't think of it as data. But when all of a sudden the expression is GUI things and you care about mm -hmm. the way they are laid out, then all of a sudden mm -hmm. you, you want to be able to manipulate these things mm -hmm. as, as data. So, 
That's got yeah. It's definitely very. I mean, macros are the foundation for this mechanism. Mm -hmm. it just adds a bunch of stuff. Oh, and then the other, yeah, the last thing I wanted to mention about what we're doing with hazel and and palettes is, uh, if you have a hole in a palette. For example, okay, so here's an example of a palette that's kind of interesting. Say you're constructing a plot, uh, and a plot has a title, and it has axes labels, and it has some data, and it has some color parameters for different lines and so on. And those are all things where you can imagine, like, maybe it's nicer to directly manipulate that that plot, edit the text and, and the colors and stuff in line. Um, but the purpose of the plot is to plot some specific piece of data, right? Like you can create an abstract plot with some abstract data and then run that program and get the actual plot. But it'd be nice if you could actually see the data itself that you're going to plot as you're manipulating that plot in the program, a sort of plot constructor in the program. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, well, I just, I just talked about, you can run incomplete programs and you get these holes in the result with these closures around them that give you the values of all the variables in scope. Well, what if we ran the program where all the expressions that the, uh, palettes generating are just temporarily holes and we gather the closure information around them and then we provide that closure information to the GUI to the palette so then the palette could say okay well I know you want to plot this particular piece of data I'll just show you it right here in the middle of your program instead of waiting for you to run it and seeing it at the, at the bottom of your program or wherever uh, and so having these live palettes that really have access not just to the abstract expressions that you've entered inside the holes but their actual concrete values if they're available is uh is something that we're working out how to do right now as well and it's really based on the work we've done on live programming already yeah yeah so i i really love that part of your work that you could you you have not only the static abstract code but but like live data um mm -hmm. how how will that um, but I, I missed like the significance of how that would be interesting in the context of a palette. So and, and, and the purpose of like the GUI is basically to give you kind of a, for many palettes, it's per, the purpose of the palette is to give you a preview or something of what that value is eventually going to do when it's run. Um, mm -hmm. Yep. So when you're constructing the plot, it's sort of meant to be a preview of what the plot will look like when you run the program to produce the plot. What if we didn't have that gap there, right? What if we could just show you the data you're plotting as you're constructing the, the plot parameters and so on? And, and that's why it's really useful to have that live information and to run, run the program before it's done. It's like before the palettes even kind of, before you're done interacting with the palette, you could still run the program and get the information that the palette needs to give you even better assistance. I see. Mm -hmm. Cool. So I think there's lots of examples of like monitors and things that you could basically do where you basically put in a palette whose only purpose is to show you the value of some argument that you've provided to that palette in, in line inside your program. Just for the feedback. Mm -hmm. Like just for the feedback, like the code it generates might even just be like unit sometimes mm -hmm. cool yeah or like it takes the argument and gives it back to you as the identity like it behaves as the identity function but its display gives you information i feel like that that's kind of like equivalent to console.log and 
like mm -hmm. it, it, if if the behavior you want is you know just show me the value of this thing should, mm -hmm. i imagine there should be like an editor um magic that mm -hmm. does that without having to <laughs> to you know yeah if it's instrument. just literally show me the value of this thing it, it, maybe not maybe that's not what you want but it could be like show me some you know some particular way of displaying this type of thing mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense where you want some control over that yeah mm -hmm. um so w one quote that i i think i pulled out of one of your papers was um mm -hmm. you talked about recasting tricky language mechanisms um as mm -hmm. editor mechanisms oh uh, yeah um yeah so there's this whole host of language mechanisms that are used basically for convenience so um what's a good example like import star right mm -hmm. it's really terrible to do import star because <laughs> you've just dumped the entire set of bindings from this library which might change into your scope and code evolution is really difficult because things start shadowing each other and so on and the only purpose of import star is because you're too lazy to like explicitly qualify everything uh as a programmer and that's totally legitimate right like that's the kind of laziness that we you know like eating your porridge right like it'd be nice if we just could eat what we wanted right but not get the, the bad, bad side effects and so you can imagine import star just being an editor directive that says, I want you to hide the fully qual, like I want you to suggest to me things from this library and hide their fully qualified names in the visual display. But in the actual code, everything remains fully qualified. So there's no worries about uh, library evolution and things shadowing each other and not knowing what's in scope and so on. Um, so that's one example. Another is there's this whole set of language mechanisms around implicit parameter passing. So type classes are actually really just implicitly you're passing these dictionaries around to not have to explicitly pass around the equality function for every type that you use equality on and so on. Uh, Scala has this whole very complicated implicits mechanism. Um, OCaml's developing an implicits modular implicits, which is a way of passing uh, first class modules around implicitly for many of the same purposes as in Haskell and Scala. Uh, it could be, and I'm not sure if this is the way to do it, but it could be that since the purpose of this is literally just convenience, you don't want to pass these things around explicitly. What if that implicitness was just part of the editor where like things are being hidden, things are being passed automatically unless you override them. But the semantic model of the language doesn't have any of the implicits in it. It's just still the very, uh, you know, very easy to reason about semantic model of, uh, say, ML. Hmm. Right. Yeah, that uh, that's a fascinating idea. Yeah. So I, I think so, there. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it'll work, but <laughs> it's something to think about at least. And, having this co-design that you're doing where you're designing a language together with the editor and you know you are going to have an editor capable of passing implicit things around really allows you to just be like, no, we're not going to worry about that in the language design. That's for the editor side. So I, I wonder what you lose if type classes are now mm -hmm. implicit. Um, like it feels 
I could be wrong, but to me it feels like uh, type classes in Haskell are this this to almost like a tool to reason about, and they have certain laws. They're like yeah. they're more than just the sum of their parts somehow. And I, w- I worry mm-hmm. if like the if um, the the language doesn't actually talk about th- these things, then maybe the editor will be forced to do these eclipse like heuristics to like you know mm-hmm. map backwards to type classes when you could have just put them in the semantics yeah so type classes are really just kind of a impoverished module system in a lot of ways right they bundle together a bunch of functions uh and these laws are like relationships that should hold about those functions uh together with like a single type that they're talking about or sometimes multiple arguments to these side classes. And um, there's a mechanism in OCaml called modular that's being developed in OCaml called modular implicits. And it's based on this paper called modular type classes, uh, which separates that those two aspects of type classes. So the implicit passing of things is one part of the type class mechanism and that sort of bundling functions together to talk about a type that's sort of an abstract type is another aspect of type classes. Mm. And interesting. those two things don't need to go together. Ah, okay. And, and the thing that I was worried about losing is the abstract bundle. Yeah. You're, yeah. You were worried about losing the module system aspects of it. And I think those things come from having a proper module system, which the Haskell world has sort of slowly started to realize they need a module system. There's this project called backpack, backpack, which tries to back patch a, <laughs> Uh, module system into the Camel or into the uh, Haskell like, build system, basically, um, and it, yeah, it seems like an interesting approach. Like it seems like it'll work out, but it's a lot nicer to have it be actually a part of the language than at the level of only like package management. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, got it. So yeah. with Hazel, we want a, a proper module ML style module system at some point. The development of Hazel is very rate limited by just how much time the few of us that understand that code base really well have to work on these things. So it might be a little while before we get a proper module system, but if you want one. I see. And mm-hmm. I guess, I don't know if you're the right person to ask this question too, but as far as the, the type classes laws go, are there any mm-hmm. programming language semantics that have laws embedded in the language itself? Uh, or without like only be like a language like cock or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you start talking about the equational behavior of uh, of functions, you need a type system that has support for reasoning about equational behavior, and then you're doing dependently type programming. Um, there are refinement type systems that have sort of uh, refi- so refinement type systems are kind of in between and certain sense uh sort of simple type systems and dependent type systems where you can you can say like this is an int such that you know x is an int such that x greater than zero and then you've defined this uh, predicate on on values of that that type int and there are ways to there's some really cool work in liquid haskell on kind of encoding equational proofs into refinement type systems which are actually simpler in some ways than full dependent types um this is work by nikki vizau and 
Ranjit Jala and some other folks. Um, but yeah, it's it's difficult to actually. Yeah, Liquid Haskell is probably the the thing I would that would maybe answer your question if you want to stop short of full dependent types, but still reason about type class laws. Mm -hmm. Got mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people push me to Liquid Haskell and uh, mm -hmm. dependent types and refinement types. So I I probably should actually learn what these words mean at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so like verification of these like non-trivial program properties is another really interesting research area that's been a lot of what PL research has been about for many years. Um, so, uh, yeah, I find that like that's another thing that we haven't done much with in Hazel yet, but like editor integration of these kinds of things where it like helps you discover the invariants uh, and then prove them correct, you know, prove your code correct. That's like another kind of frontier of PL research that had a lot of foundational research already done and it needs to kind of be put into practice inside an editor. So um, so speaking of foundational PL research, I think now mm -hmm. is maybe a good time to um, ask you to defend it because mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of people, I, I, I don't know if, if uh, Again, you're the best person to defend it, but I, I think you're, you're particularly credible to my audience because yeah. you're someone who's clearly concerned about the yeah. programming experience yeah. and and like improving the lives of programmers. So I don't think yeah. someone listening to you would think, oh, well, this guy is just like an academic who's just proving abstract properties of things <laughs> nobody cares about. Yeah. Um, I, and yet it, it seems like you really um, think that the mainstream programming languages, research, Greek letters stuff is is providing value when I think a lot of us, um, even even smart people, look at those papers and, and, and just see uh, like esotericness. Uh, like I, mm -hmm. I, I recently, you and I interacted on Twitter where um, mm -hmm. Eliezer Yudkowsky, a very smart programmer, and Paul Graham, mm -hmm. also another very smart programmer, were bashing Greek letters. And um, yeah. And uh, compute and then the new computer science paper, like what new computer yeah. science papers look like. So, anyways, what, what's your what's your defense? Um, yeah, there's a lot there. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of different views on on Greek letters and math and its value. I mean, if you step away from CS, if you told a physicist that math is superfluous, you get laughed out of the room, right? Like, you can't do physics without math. Uh, and as you get more towards the sort of human sciences, people become more and more hesitant to involve math. Uh, and I'm not sure that really makes sense, right? Like, obviously, there are other things you have to involve when you start talking about designing things for humans. It's not strictly math. But there are many, many just mathematical questions at the heart of programming language design and if you try to do it in any other way you you're just flailing in the dark right so um well so i think this, just uh, i was going to say um i feel like part of the like the, the quick counter argument to that is there are a lot of people who make a lot of progress you know make billion dollar businesses or whatever doing programming and not and not doing the math stuff. They are doing math. I mean, 
they're just doing math kind of by the seat of their pants right and they don't ever feel that they don't feel that confidence that you get from knowing what you're doing there's a lot of uh reasoning by analogy instead of reasoning from first principles in programming as it's typically practice where you go on stack overflow and you find some code that's kind of vaguely similar to what you think you need and you copy it in and you see you see if it works uh, and you fiddle with it if it doesn't and yeah that that's fine you can you can build you know you can build bridges without understanding calculus that doesn't mean you can build the golden gate bridge without understanding calculus and as we start solving more complicated problems in computing, we're going to need more mathematical rigor and discipline than we needed to build, you know, apps and things for um, limited purposes. Um, then the other question is, yeah, I mean, so, so, okay. So I, I think math is really valuable. I think it's very intimidating, especially when you start using letters that, I remember when I first started reading PL papers, I didn't even know what the letter was. I didn't, no one ever taught me the Greek alphabet. <laughs> right. So you weren't, you're not in a frat? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, that's the only background I had on, I wasn't in a frat, but I went to University of Illinois for undergrad, which uh, has a very large uh, Greek system. But yeah, that was the only way I really knew what the, some of the capital Greek letters were, but there's a lot of lowercase Greek letters in math too. So um, yeah, I think that's really a, um, a, train, a failure of training, right? Like I think you can get a computer science degree without anyone ever even attempting to teach you how to do this stuff because there's some assumption that it's too hard or you won't need it. And so it's just a uh, circular kind of situation where no one ever learns how to read the papers that we're writing. And so they are very difficult to read if no one's ever taught you how to read them. Um, but, and there's also this failure of expectations, right? If you, if you see 10 pages or five pages of, uh, of a paper, then you have, your brain sort of has this expectation for how long five pages takes to read. Mm -hmm. And that expectation will be grossly and frustratingly violated if you try <laughs> to read a five or ten page mathematically dense paper in the same amount of time it takes you to write read ten pages of a novel um, that's well said and, but that you shouldn't come in with that expectation right you should think of math mathematical notation as a sort of compression scheme for knowledge and when you first start reading math in a domain, you're going to have to completely decompress it. And that 10 page paper will be like 100 pages decompressed or more, right? Like, I don't know what the compression ratio is for type theory, but it's pretty high. Um, but what's, what's great is once you've started doing that decompression long enough, it happens in the sort of subconscious. And then you can read these things very quickly because you're your whole brain is engaged in processing them instead of just the sort of frontal lobe that's manually decompressing them and trying trying to understand what's going on. And so after, you know, after some amount of time, it becomes really valuable to have, uh, have mathematical notation. If you look back at the history of, um, 
mathematical notation, which is very interesting. Uh, like Euclid's Elements, which is like 3,000 years old or something like that. It's, it's this text on geometry, and it has some geometrical figures, and then it has text written in Greek longhand. There's no symbols, except occasionally a symbol referring to um, an edge of, of some geometric figure or something like that. And so these, these pages are just super tedious to read. <laughs> like you have just full sentences that are like, you know, add this to this and then square it. And those are all just words on the page. Uh, but this is what math was for, for a long time, I think, because, yeah, like it wasn't obvious that there was this other way to do it that would be like initially a little imposing, but eventually much nicer. Uh, it wasn't really until even like the 1600s when the printing press and all these things started democratizing learning about these these topics that people said, do we really need to print this much to convey this idea, right? Can we actually, you know, um, abbreviate some of these things? And so you started with abbreviations of and, which became plus. Um, and slowly more and more abbreviations started entering. It wasn't, you know, matrix notation. It's like late 1800s and Leibniz and had some calculus notation that's persisted, which I don't actually think it's very good. Um, and it's really only in the, the 20th century where like math exploded and became a part of everything that notation also exploded. Um, but in every other domain, we don't expect, you know, civil engineers to understand calculus without taking three semesters or more of it. Um, I think we need that same expectation for like, like learn how to program without the math, of course, right? Like use Stack Overflow, write cool stuff, but also slowly, whether or not you're in college, whether or not it's immediately relevant to you, like read a little bit more of the theory with the expectation that it's gonna take a while and it's a long-term learning process. Uh, and then you end up in a place where it's just very, you can understand complex concepts very quickly and very precisely. And you feel this, I keep using the word confidence. Like I feel confident about my understanding of something like polymorphism because I've studied the theory of it in a way that just like using polymorphism in practice a lot, maybe wouldn't have made me as confident in, in what I'm doing. Yeah, well, I think that's that's quite a good pitch for studying math. So, would you have some concrete um, places to start learning? Like, yeah, we already mentioned Tapple and um, Bob Harper's book. What are the other? Yeah, those are those are great starting points. You don't need to even read the whole book, right? Like, I think the first quarter of the book is enough to then like pick up as many EPL papers and start to understand them. Um, I do wish we had more, like I was saying at the beginning, you know, I wish we had more um, surveys and introductory material in, in places where you take all the contributions that exist in papers and, and bring them together, this sort of wiki idea. Uh, <laughs> and so I hope one day to, you know, be involved in building such a thing. Um, but for now, textbooks are great. You know, one of this Twitter conversation you mentioned, I think one aspect of, of, I don't remember who said it, but one of the people in that conversation said basically like introductions in papers aren't written for, 
you know, for everyone anymore. And that's true, right? Like there are page limits. And when I write a paper, I'm writing it for the audience of that conference, which is not the general CS public even. Um, but the reason for that is I can build on these very nice textbooks that exist, right? Like my papers are written for people that have read the first quarter of those textbooks. I'm not going to try to re, you know, rewrite those textbooks in the intro section of every paper that I write. That would be a colossal waste of time and space. Hmm. Um, well, yeah, that's, a, that's actually an interesting, like, I, I have an interesting lens on that way, that thought, because um, uh, I spent a, a, a few weeks ago, I spent a long time on, on a, like an introductory paper to like a very dense mathematical topic. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I tried to write it for a general audience and it did not go well. Yeah. Um, and I think part of the issue was I was writing about a complicated subject, but with the tone mm -hmm. of like, you'll, you'll be able to get this if you just read my writing. Yeah. And, and I think, and I, now I kind of wish, uh, uh, like I was, I, I'm, I'm considering putting at the top of the article. Like if you don't already understand these concepts, don't read this article. Um, yeah, that would be like, great. I wish we had more of that. Like, here's the here are the prereqs for this paper. Please make sure yeah. you've at least looked briefly at these things first. <laughs> yeah, well, because it's crazy. Like, when I go to install a piece of software, and they're like, they don't list the yeah. prereqs what I need installed for. The, like, I just I, yeah. I hit I hit install, and they're like, oh, like it just gives me an error. Like, this thing isn't installed. It's like what? <laughs> like, how could you not list the prereq? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, somehow this is a very difficult problem in computing, right? The dependencies yeah different software as with other software yeah um, well I, well so i guess what i was getting to is that greek letters or like certain things like that yeah. kind of do that by proxy it's like if this mm -hmm. scares you like you'll just stay away on your own you don't need the like warning sign <laughs> yeah maybe <laughs> but there's i mean greek letters are used in all sorts of different domains right there's basic <laughs> type theory that uses greek letters but there's like other there's papers written where you just need to have read other papers in that field and there is no textbook and there's no survey paper. And uh, I think that's a shame, but that's, that's still true. And those are the papers where I think you really need this kind of like guide to at least point you towards the right papers. Sometimes the, a good intro should point you to the right things to read, to understand the rest of the paper. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, thank you for your defense of, um, theory oh well actually there was one other thing um that i wanted to uh tee up for you because i remember when we were in boston together mm -hmm. i i i asked i forget what it was that i asked you but i i i mentioned something about like why you're working on theory like it was, it was a similar question of like defend defend your your profession defend theory and, uh -huh. and your response was like like theory has this generality that like mm -hmm. it, it might not work with the tools of today and the fads of today. Like th theory has this, right. uh, like it'll be around for forever and it'll be applicable in many different domains. Yeah, exactly. So it might be that it might be that people end up using Hazel itself. I'm optimistic, but regardless of whether that's true, the papers that we're writing with theory in them are relevant to anyone in the future who has these ideas about structure editing and liveness and so on. And the future is a very big place compared to the past of programming so far, or even the past of mathematics so far, hopefully, right? Hopefully humanity survives 
and uh, it seems inevitable that at some point someone else will want to develop a structure editor <laughs> like it would be very uh, it would be I would need a lot more confidence that I have than I have about the future of Hazel to just be like, I don't need to talk about what's going on. People will just use Hazel. I need to do it once and that's it. Right. And so the generality aspect is just the future is much longer than the past. So we should be writing for the future. Hmm. Well then it's almost like why waste your time building Hazel? Cause it's just one shot in the dark and, and there's an infinity, there's an army of people in the future who yeah. might build things. Why don't you no, just, but there's lots of, there's lots of theoretical questions that will come up as Hazel develops further and we'll write and we'll write papers about those, those things that will be <laughs> relevant to people in the future that come up on the same problems. I don't want to understate. I like, I do want, I think we're in a very uh, important part of history here at the beginning of computing. Um, where the choices that we make now will resonate over hundreds of years potentially. And so I'm not completely just leaving the future to the future. Right. But in the it's case right. that we, we don't solve all the problems in my lifetime, I do hope that the things that we develop now will be built upon in the future and not just reinvented constantly mm -hmm. and poorly. So, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. almost like a backup plan. Worst case mm -hmm. scenario. Mm-hmm um yeah because I, I guess if you just um wrote your insights into code nobody's going to go back and, and parse them out of the yeah. code and and put them into the next yeah. their next thing yeah so that code is math in my mind it's just like if you think 10 pages of greek letters is hard to read try reading forty thousand lines of poorly structured haskell instead right like that will take you a lot more time than it takes you to read 10 chapters of a textbook and then 12 pages or <laughs> like two pages worth, uh, two papers worth of Hazel stuff. Uh, so well, Hazel's written in OCaml. So yeah, Hazel's about, no, right now Hazel's very austere, but it's still about 25,000 lines of code, the implementation. That's going to take you a lot longer to read than our 25 pages of paper. And it's yeah. going to be a lot harder for you to get the essential ideas out of that code base than it's going to be to get them out of my papers, hopefully. So, <laughs> hopefully, yeah. I don't know. Well, I, I, <laughs> I think that's a pretty good um, pitch. Um, math is compression, like what you said before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so um, I'm realizing now that there was one um, topic of Hazel that I left out that I want to come back around to: um, mm -hmm. collaboration and how yeah. this edit semantics you have could be extended to have like multiple people editing the same code base at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I'm really excited about. Um, yeah. Right now we have this edit action semantics, which tells you what edit actions do, but they all assume a single cursor and of course. Oh, so the cursor is basically. part of the um, edit mm -hmm. semantics. It's, mm -hmm. it's like formally represented. That like when your cursor is yeah. here, oh, interesting. Yeah, because so that that isn't obvious to me. That like, because mm -hmm. I, I would almost think of having edit semantics that's like a bird's eye view semantics. Yeah, there's other ways to represent. I mean, there's some um, there's other ways to represent where the cursor is than we choose. I think you want a cursor or multiple cursors. 
Because what? It, I mean, what? It, you don't want the edit actions to just be. They need a, a locus of action. Mm-hmm. Right? Your edits yeah. are happening somewhere. Hmm. Um, and that's what well, it gives you. Well, I guess now that that obviously makes sense um, based on the way that we edit code now yeah. and, and text editing. But now that I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, if we, if, I don't know, if you could rethink it in a way where that wouldn't be what you want, but I guess you're right. You, you do want a locus of action. So a cursor yeah, that, makes sense. It's hard to imagine doing just like transformations on the whole program from the top without referring to a place in the program. Yeah. There are different ways to refer to a place in a program. You could have unique IDs for AST nodes and refer to them that way, but then like the selected unique ID is effectively the way you're representing the cursor. So it's it's um, mm-hmm. isomorphic in that way. Okay. Um, but with, uh, yeah, so with uh, collaborative editing, right, you want to have multiple... One way to put it is you want to have multiple cursors. Another way to put it is you want to have multiple replicas of uh, of the editor state, where maybe in each replica there's one cursor, like each person has their own replica and their own cursor in it. Uh, but then you want some way for the uh, so yeah so in each replica you're editing it by creating this history of edit actions. That's that's changing the code, and you can represent that change by you know a structural diff. But really, kind of the things that cause that change is that's are the edit actions that you performed. Uh, on that replica. And so what we want to do is have some semantics for edit actions such that you can interleave these uh, edit action sequences from different replicas and leave the program in a consistent state for all all the people viewing it. So this, yeah, this subsumes collaborative editing in the Google Docs sense. And it also subsumes version control in the Git sense, because all of these things are just, you have different people performing edit actions on, on replicas, and then you want some way to combine them. And the way we combine things right now is these structural diffs, which often obscure what you actually did, because it needs to be evident with just kind of, without any like notion of history. Um, so what if we represented change instead of, instead of with structural diffs as, you represent change with sequences of edit actions, and then you have a semantics of edit actions that has this theoretical property, right? That you figure out using Greek, um, <laughs> that that says that inter, uh, there's a convergence, right? If you merge these replicas used by merging the sequence, interleaving the sequences of edit actions, you get an equivalent output for some notion of equivalence. Um, now, to make that work, you need some notion of conflict in your semantics as well. So the simplest example is you just have two replicas. They each have a hole in it. One person fills that hole with three, and one fills it with four, right? Uh, there's no way to create a consistent view of those two that is that happened to those two replicas by choosing three arbitrarily or choosing four arbitrarily. Right, yeah. You want to somehow represent conflict and put the three and the four there, and say, well, everyone now consistently sees that this is a conflict, and then there are some edit actions available to resolve conflicts, and those go through the same process. Uh, and so it's kind of like you know when when Git inserts these like less than less than less than less than things, um, 
except the editor understands them instead of it just barfing because it's not part of the programming language syntax. Yeah, I like th this theme. It seems like you, you, so you're reifying errors into the programming language mm -hmm. semantics. Now you're also reifying mm -hmm. conflicts into the, the semantics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very cool. So, so you're, you're taking all of the, almost say all of the, the auxiliary tools in programming and you're putting them into the semantics of the language itself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's this danger of like trying to reinvent everything, which is just a lot to bite off, especially as a researcher. But I think this is a pretty natural thing to start thinking about when um, you develop a structure editor is what does, how, do, how does change get represented? Um, and yeah, and, and what this is all related to is this notion from distributed data structures called the CRDT, which stands for conflict-free or sometimes convergent replicated data structure. Um, so there is theory, you know, there's some nice papers starting about in 2011 on, on CRDTs for much simpler data structures like, you know, sets, right? Like insert only set. It doesn't matter where the what order the insertions come in you just can replay them in any arbitrary order and you'll get the same set. Um, and so what if instead of the data structure being something very simple like a set, what if it was an expression in the, a typed expression in the Lambda calculus or in some extension of the Lambda calculus? So that's kind of the research question there. Is can you make a CRDT for this very semantically rich data structure? Hmm. Yeah, it does sound like a hard question. And to your point of it's like worrying to reinvent everything about programming. Um, yes. I, I see that that's a worrying thing for, yeah, for just you to do by yourself. But I, I do like the idea of reinventing everything that has to do with programming that's kind of now on the side. Like yeah. just, it's been ad hoc, seat of the pants, you know, <laughs> well, this language doesn't do this thing. So let's like put it in the editor and let's, you know, yeah. Yeah. I think I really like the idea of, um, of, re, of taking all those things and, putting them into the into semantics uh yeah. like so we have like mathematical confidence about these things mm -hmm. and and to, to the point that you said earlier um mm -hmm. we we also have the ability with these greek letters to test out some of these things independently so it's not like mm -hmm. you cyrus have to do all of these things but it's almost like mm -hmm. yeah it they're all a lot of them are orthogonal once, once we've, yeah. as a community, kind of agreed upon the fact that, okay, we're going in the structured editor direction and yeah. we're, um, we care about programming experience um, and we care about like embedding everything about programming into mathematical semantics, then all of a sudden yeah. um, like researchers can be freed up to work on like, you know, someone else can work on the collaborative, the CRDT problem and you don't have to, you know, you don't have to worry, but when they're done, you could just kind of import their, yeah. their Greek letters into your, your code base. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, this is kind of an underappreciated benefit of having a thing like the Lambda Calculus is like, in many ways, it's the most widely used programming language in, in computer science research, right? Because so many researchers build on the Lambda Calculus, much more than there are researchers that build on any particular programming language. Uh, and they can all, all that work is going towards this kind of common vision that's emerging um where yeah like one person can work on what collaborative editing looks like with the lambda calculus and one person can work on what live programming looks like with the lambda calculus and those things are very easy to merge because they're both based on the lambda calculus as opposed to if like 
one person did it with OCaml and one person did it with JavaScript, it's like, okay, now we have this third problem of how do we make this all make sense together? <laughs> so um, there's like, um, there are a few things, but the one in particular idea I've had for improving programming um, mm -hmm. that I, not until this conversation did I think like, oh, maybe I should prototype this um, like on top of the Lambda calculus instead of, mm -hmm. you know, like in a broader, you know, seat of the pants experiment, you know? Yeah. Um, so, it, and, and maybe, maybe they'll just point me to literature where this already exists. Um, hash, uh, where you, where the terms in a programming language are the referred to by the hash of their definition. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So uh, that idea exists. I, uh, I don't know of anyone that's done that with the Lambda calculus, but I haven't searched for that. Yeah. Because to me, that does, does, does the Lambda calculus have definitions or it's it doesn't have like... It doesn't have definitions in the sense of like type definitions or module definitions or anything like that. There's no sense of labels. Yeah, so that's what I'm wondering. This feels like sort of... Um, a labely yeah, thing but but you can you can label there is i think there is something called the labeled lambda calculus uh where each term has a unique label on it um i'd have to go look at that again to remember what the purpose of that was but well i guess maybe the broader question is are there some times when simply type or, or where some lambda calculus isn't the right medium for programming language experimentation where you'd say you know what mm -hmm. like you should just um just like whip out some code and, and experiment with that you know by the seat of your pants like you know this this isn't i i'm not opposed you know i write code in the context of uh experimentation sometimes before i do lambda calculus -y stuff uh Wow. So I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> so risque. To, I'm not opposed to that. Yeah. I don't do it that often. Actually, I do mostly start on paper with the Lambda calculus, to be honest, but, um, uh, definitely user inter like, you know, I work on the kind of underlying mechanisms, the semantics for the live programming and all this stuff. There's a bunch of UI stuff that I, yeah, I'm, I don't focus on and when i do do ui stuff for hazel i just implement it and play with it and see how it works right there's not a lot of ways I to see. do mathematics yeah, yeah, ui stuff, stuff. Yeah, yeah 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 so like if it is a ui experiment that you're doing by all means do a ui experiment with code um mm. or, all right, well or, said. or yeah. with other with other methods like mock-ups we did some mock-up stuff in that xc paper yep. we were talking about um as far as yeah well, I guess part of the question, um, yeah. like well, con con part you're talking about like content addressable kind of, kind yeah, of well, coding, encodings, right? Well, yeah, but because, and part of why I was inspired to ask this question is um, before this conversation, I never thought of like Git, which seems very much like orthogonal uh -huh. to editing, orthogonal to like the semantics of a language. Like the, the semantics of a language, I thought right. was about like right. you know how to evaluate the language and all of a sudden you're like no actually like if we have an edit semantics now all of a sudden like git yeah. has like formal semantics like look at that yeah yeah edit actions they having a semantics for edit actions is so beautiful right it gives you this way to talk about change and programming and all this stuff that we've just thought about informally like if you think about it like we if i asked you or if i showed you 
three plus four plus, and then I stopped there. And I asked you, tell me what's going to happen here. You as a human is very easily, as you're going to say, it's going to be seven plus whatever you're going to write. Yeah. But until very recently, we had no way to say that formally. <laughs> and it's the same way with edit actions. Like we have this very rich mental model in our mind of what editing means, but there's no way to talk about it. And now we have a way to talk about it in, mm. in mathematics. And so, mm. yeah, I think it opens up a lot of interesting research directions that I'm really excited to work on over the coming years. Collaborative editing is one of them. So um, I, I usually when I see in your presentations, you, when you talk about collaborative editing, the next place you go um, is also very exciting to me. You talk about this computational Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. Well, we started with that almost. Yeah. <laughs> well, so that was almost like a scientific Wikipedia. And then, uh -huh. well, actually, yeah, and you're right, computational in that. Well, and it depends what you mean by computational, because yeah. I think maybe the weakest way to interpret computational Wikipedia is it's Wikipedia, but there's a place where you can press a button and they'll run some code and give you the results. <laughs> and uh -huh. it's like Wikipedia, but it's like also Jupyter Notebook. And I think that's like, yeah. whatever, like, that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. not only can uh -huh. you embed pictures, uh, you can also embed code. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which I think that would be useful, but that's not exactly what I have in mind. I have something kind of grander in mind. Yeah, I think one of the things you said about it that stuck with me is what if we, I don't know if it's what you meant, if you imagine all of software as mm -hmm. being somehow connected mm -hmm. and it's like one sing, all the different software is just one single piece of software and it's yeah. all being edited to collaborate at the same time and yet mm -hmm. like when one person's in the middle of an edit, not everyone else's computer is crashing. Right, yeah. So imagine, yeah, imagine something the size of Wikipedia or the size of the internet, right? Which is actually formally a single mathematical expression. It's just massive expression. And it's evolving through this edit action semantics and people are running bits and pieces of it because you can run bits and pieces of stuff now that we have this semantics for incomplete programs. Uh, and yeah, so one person editing one page and you know stopping in the middle of what they're doing and getting some coffee won't if that brought down wikipedia this would be completely infeasible but solving the gap problem really solving it where there's no gaps allows us to really think about this in this very elegant unifying way that's rooted in thousands of years of history of mathematics um so you know i think that's a nice thought experiment could we actually have an, a mathematical expression that big being edited by many many people and have it serve the same purposes that like separate siloed programs and pages and things serve today mm -hmm. i think so i think there's lots of technical implementation questions that would arise at that scale i don't know how fast my code would run at that scale <laughs> but uh conceptually i think it's doable yeah, I, I, it's funny, you and I are, I guess, are quite similar in that my vision for the future of software is also quite similar in that, um, mm -hmm. like, a single expression can, can represent this really rich, complicated, gooey, you know, can represent, like, all of software, basically. Yeah. I, I don't think I personally thought of putting all of software in, in the same expression, I, I <laughs> but... Um, it's the same, I think of it as like the same medium, basically, um, like on GitHub, how you have different projects. Yeah. 
to me, those boundaries always felt kind of artificial. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of, you know, people, when I say this, sometimes people ask me about versioning, right? If someone's editing the li a library that you rely on, then it's going to break your code and this could be chaos, right? Yeah. And, you know, there's ways to solve, there's ways to solve that by pinning things to different versions and all this kind of stuff. But I kind of want to just like embrace the chaos of it. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I just, I want, I want like my code to break because someone else is editing another page on Wikipedia. And then I want them to come over and, and, and help me fix my code. And I want to go over there and like watch them as they're coding and see what changes that they're making and ask them about it. Uh, mm. And keep everything in a single consistent state instead of trying to pin things to different versions and hmm. oh that's interesting know. yeah like i know you can do that and in you know in other settings that might those mechanisms might be necessary but for something like wikipedia just embracing this just the, the life that this artifact has i think is something that i'm really interested in huh yeah yeah i like I like that um, sentiment, even just to push us to like think about, mm -hmm. um, yeah, what would have to be true in order for that to be viable. Yeah, um, yeah. Because I, I think you could look at Google Docs as doing that. It totally embraces, you mm -hmm. know, just and and the reason Google Docs is able to do that uh, is because it solved the gap problem. Like, there's no point at which Google, <laughs> Google yeah, Doc will right. break. And so because you've solved the gap problem, just because I'm working on the paragraph one and you're working on paragraph seven, but in code, mm -hmm. like there's nothing you could do in paragraph seven that's going to really screw with paragraph one too badly. Yeah. Um, so in theory, once the gap problem is solved, um, potentially, yeah, maybe a lot of the issues in terms of why we fork code and version code go away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I mean, some of the issues won't. Like you need good refactoring tools, right? You want to say if I change this type definition, add a new case, then I want to offer that refactoring where all the all the pattern matching on that data type now has the new case and maybe there's a default or something, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, yep, doing, it, doing it out with, without good refactoring tools is probably gonna annoy people, but there, there's another set of research problems is how do you make good refactoring tools in that setting? Well, I think that that's part of what I like about your sentiment. Instead of saying like, oh, well, you know, any refactoring is going to be messy. So let's just like, like uh, pin things to versions because that, yeah. you know, it's all the problem. Instead of that, let's um, like challenge ourselves to make refactorings so good that mm -hmm. um, we don't need to pin things to versions. Like th things, things will somehow just evolve beautifully over time uh, if, <laughs> yeah. if we give people the well, right tools. I don't want to say it's going to be beautiful. I think there will be chaos. Like that's why I use the word chaos. I think sometimes it'll be like annoying, but that's okay. <laughs> it'll be beautiful. Sort of the whole thing together will be beautiful, even if pieces of it are sometimes annoying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, cool. So before we sign off, I wanted to um, get. A, I wanted to hear an update of uh, your academic life and how because i know i think the uh, last time we talked you're looking you were looking implying to jobs as like a mm -hmm. professor assistant professor yeah I know. well i right. guess I'm looking i just for... i just want to mm -hmm. contextualize um the people who listen to this podcast are interested in programming computer science and the future of programming and yeah. um i think a lot of us go out about it at different ways uh I'm, yeah and and so i think there are a lot of us who are interested in the academic route but don't have a lot of insight mm -hmm. into it. So um, 
yeah. Uh, yeah. If you could tell us where in the process you are and um, how it's going, that'd be great. Sure. Um, yeah. So I'm looking for tenure track faculty positions as an assistant professor, uh, primarily. I'm really, I mean, I'm looking for a place where I can do this kind of work, right? Where I, I can, when a theoretical question comes up, I work out the theory and I also get the opportunity to work on these kind of long-term visions and these experimental platforms that maybe aren't immediately useful. And uh, academia is one of the few places where that kind of thing is at least nominally supported. Um, and yeah, um, you know, I applied to 54 places, right? Just all over the place. No way. Where that's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, was and, this like you just checked 54 boxes and hit apply or you had to actually do 54 applications? You, so to submit, yeah. So it's a lot of the material is the same, right? You write a research statement that's kind of three or four pages about what, um, research you've done and what you plan to do in the future and why it's important and interesting. And, uh, and then you write a teaching statement, which is yeah, a summary of what you've done with teaching and what you plan to do, what kind of classes you want to teach, uh, what your teaching philosophy is, what your advising philosophy is, that kind of thing. Uh, and a few places have a diversity statement now where you talk about ways you're working to broaden participation in, in um, computing and in research. Uh, and then you write a cover letter for each place that's kind of, uh, you know, specific. the form of the cover letter is the same for each mm -hmm. place, but you yeah. say something specific about <laughs> each place. <laughs> and uh, so each application took between 10 and 30 minutes individually to write that cover letter, basically, and to do the research. Um so it was a lot of work in writing the research statement. I mean, it's three or four pages, but it takes as you know, it took as much time as writing kind of a full paper did for me because you have to put a lot into those pages. Um, mm -hmm. So it was, yeah, it was a couple of months basically. It made, that was my main project was applying to these jobs, um, and uh, yeah, those applications were due kind of mid December. I'm starting to hear back from some places now about getting some phone interviews and a couple of in-person interviews. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty stressful process. Um, different departments have uh, different areas in CS that they're really focused on. A lot of things nowadays are very focused on AI and machine learning. And, um, cybersecurity is a big thing. And there's always, you know, like funding things that you have to now start thinking about who's going to fund the work and yeah so it's uh you know it's very much like a lot of people make an analogy between being an assistant professor and like starting a startup you're, you're recruiting and you're raising money and you're trying to convince people like old people that maybe don't really get what's going on nowadays that well <laughs> that, you're, that you're exciting and and you're not doing work that's been done in the 80s as you know like someone who works on structure editors a lot of senior faculty are like oh yeah i remember the cornell program synthesizer in 1982 and i'm like okay well <laughs> i read about that as well and i think we're doing some new things but you know you have to convince them that you're not just unaware of and retreading work that's been done in the past that um it's already finished so it's yeah it's really un it's unclear 
you're writing these things for people you don't know. You don't know who's going to read them. You don't know how they're going to respond. So it's pretty stressful. Um, but the goal, I mean, the, the, yeah, if all goes well, I'll be in a good situation, I think, where I can work on these kinds of ideas without having to, um, having to think too much about quarter to quarter stuff, right? The way you have to in most companies. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the real benefit of doing it in academia. That and the colleagues that you have, right? You have people that very smart, read the papers, you know, can point you to, uh, to papers that are relevant to you, that can talk to you in turn. Like that, they have all read the textbooks, right? They can talk to them in Greek on the whiteboard. Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely an option for people that are interested in life and, uh, in the future of coding. It's definitely worth considering like going to grad school. It's not the only way to do it. And I know there's a lot of people that are managing to like kind of do this work on their own, like you and a lot of other people in the live community. Um, but it is, you know, it's an option. Right, there is support for this kind of work. There's a lot of excitement. You know, I go, I I write papers about this kind of stuff that we're talking about to conferences like Popple, which are very much just like theory conferences. And there's a ton of excitement there. You know, people are really like happy that someone's bringing these problems to them in ways that they, using tools that they've developed. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not like I'm being antagonized for working on these kind of user-facing problems. It's I feel supported by the research community. Well, that's great. That's yeah. awesome. Mm -hmm. um, cool. So let's um, finish up with the final question. Um, more logistical than anything else. Uh, where yeah. are the places on the internet uh, that people can uh, interact with you? And, and in which ways are you looking for people to uh, interact with you? Sure. Um, so you can read more about Hazel at hazel.org. Uh, that's my main project right now. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. My Twitter name is Neurosci, N-E-U-R-O-C-Y. And uh, I'm reasonably active on there. Less, you know, I had a New Year's resolution to be less active on Twitter. So <laughs> I'm uh, less active on Twitter now. It's funny to like, I, I, I wonder what it's like to start a company where people's New Year's resolution is to do, yeah, use less of your product. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I hope Hazel's not in that camp one day. <laughs> My goal is to waste time on Hazel less. <laughs> um, well, I don't and, know if, uh, if anyone's like, I, I really just got to spend less time on Wikipedia. It's just, yeah. it's just too much of my time. <laughs> I've had that thought. I remember like procrastinating on studying for tests in college and on Wikipedia. So maybe it'll be like that. Um, and if you're interested, so if you're if you're interested in, in Hazel and getting involved in the Hazel project, we're definitely open to that. We have a Slack channel uh, that I'm happy to invite people to. Um, it's got about 50 people in it right now, so it's kind of it's a lively place. And um, yeah, there's a bit of a you know we've been talking about like yeah there's a bit of a um, initial effort that you have to put in to learn a little bit of theory and to read the papers that underlie our implementation and learn a little bit of OCaml if you haven't learned that yet. Uh, but we're happy to support people doing that, asking questions as they read these things, trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, so if that's something you're interested in, definitely um, send me a message on, on Twitter or send me an email. You can find me on Google. 
I have a web page. And that's very yeah. generous. That sounds yeah, like a really. I think it's a. It's it's a it's a nice uh, you know. I told I acknowledge that theory has been unapproachable for a long time, and I'm trying to you know do what I can to make it approachable. And one of these things is like I'm very open to this mentorship kind of thing, in this, in, in the Hazel Slack, and in other ways. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, um, thanks so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, this was great. I really enjoy your podcast in general. Um, so really, thanks for thanks for this is like a great service to our community. I think. Oh wow! Thank you. Um, thanks for listening. I, I'm yeah. glad it, it appeals even to someone as uh, seriously Greek as you. <laughs> I don't want to like. I, I want to get away from that. Like, oh, you're elite because you know Greek, right? Like, mm. like, like, let's democratize Greek. Greece was known for its democracy, right? Let's democratize Greek. Uh, well said. Well said. <laughs> Alrighty. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. If you enjoy these conversations, I bet you'd fit right into our online community. You can join our Slack group at futureofcoding.org slash Slack, where we chat about these topics, share links, feedback, and organize in-person meetups in various cities, New York, London, now San Francisco, Boston, and also Kitchener, Waterloo, and Canada. If you'd like to support these efforts, there are a few ways you can be helpful. I would really appreciate any reviews you could leave for the podcast wherever it is that you listen. If any episode in particular speaks to you, I would encourage you to share it with your friends or on social media. Uh, please tag me if you're sharing it on Twitter at Steve Krause so I can join the conversation. I also accept support directly on Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash Steve Krause. And as always, I am so thankful for the ultimate form of support, your constructive criticism. So please don't be shy with your advice.